our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. and welcome to the EDH RecCast. I'm Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he is definitely, absolutely, 100% a legitimate business person, for sure. It's Matt Morgan. So a friend of mine recently came back from Hawaii and they said, as they were getting on the plane, you know, everybody has to take your take your lays off and take your flower necklaces off. And I said, oh man, I get that. I hate when my flight gets delayed too. Oh... Matt, there that's is. there. That's terrific. I, I don't know why I didn't see that one coming, but you set it up beautifully. That's uh, uh, beautiful as the necklaces that they were not allowed to wear. Uh, of of course, of course, man. Now I want to go on a vacation because I'm here in Seattle and it is currently raining. Anyway, up next, he would like to Urabrask you a question. It's Dana Roach. Um, two cabaretty hitmen are walking deep into a forest in the middle of the night. One of them says. I've got to admit, I'm kind of scared being out here. And the other replies, you're scared. I have to walk back out of here alone. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> Dang it, Dana. That one got me good. You guys are on fire today. As a, that oh, joke man. was very funny because murder. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one black black to destroy target creature. Anyway, the- let's move on with our <laughs> intros. This is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format. Compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the EDH RecCast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, do you mind telling us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode? So this week, we are going to talk about how we assess who we're going to go after in a game of Commander, what factors play into our thought process on who we decide to take out in a game of, of EDH. Yeah, this is this is a kind of interesting one. I, I would like to call this episode not just threat assessment in EDH, but like assessing player threat assessment in EDH, because I think it can say a lot about not just the stuff that we think is the most threatening in a game, but also what everyone at the table thinks is the most threatening in the game. That can also have a big effect on the way that we play EDH. It's pretty interesting. Real quick, before we get into our main topic, though, let's pause and thank Chase, aka Mana Curves, for assisting us with the post-production on the show. Thank you so much, Chase. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the podcast as well. The EDH Recast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player, two online retailers that go together like pasta and red sauce. Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question and choose your vendor link down below. Doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. We have a neat little club over there and everybody loves joining clubs. They're the best part about <laughs> doing anything really social. So yeah, you can join our special little Discord club if you want. There's a special level of the club where you can see all the historic challenge stats picks that we've done. 
There's all sorts of different levels, no matter how deep into this EDH rec Illuminati style club <laughs> that you can just what? join. And it's just so great. Um, do, do all this and more over at patreon.com slash EDH recast. And our special member of the week that we're going to give that coveted shout out uh, every single week we do this. And so this week we are going to shout out Philip Kant. So Philip, thank you so much. Um, I can't believe that we haven't oh. found your name before, but uh, I'm just very glad that we finally did. <laughs> We we appreciate you, Philip. I'm sure you've never heard that joke ever before in your life. Uh, but th seriously, thank you so much. The uh, the patrons, y'all are awesome. Matt Illuminati, what what's happening there? Th that caught me by surprise. So I just thought since we're going to New Capenna and all that, um, the brokers, that's the Illuminati of, of New Capenna, right? I, Dana, back me up. I think so. Yeah, oh, that would be my... There it is. That would make uh, sense. Official. I... Sure, we'll go with it. All right, so we, we've got a subject to, to get to. Let's let's get to our main topic. Uh, we are talking about we're assessing player threat assessment, which I mean, threat assessment is possibly one of the biggest topics that we could tackle in any show for EDH. Like when it comes to a game of Commander, there's so much going on that if you have got the wrong threat assessed and you think that one thing is a bigger threat than another and you end up being wrong about that, it could absolutely cost you a game for sure. So before we actually get into the main meat of the episode, I, I guess I want to ask you guys if there's a primary thing that you tend to look for when it comes to threat assessment. Is there anything that you can boil it down to? Like, Dana, is there a specific rule that maybe you follow first and foremost for threat assessment, or is it maybe too complicated? What's the first thing that comes to your head when you think of threat assessment in EDH? It's too complicated. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I, I will. So, so it isn't, but like, I guess my answer would be, what is the biggest threat is going to change from situation to situation. Um, and you have to, I think, ideally be fluid and be willing to adapt to, to those things. So, like, what makes for the biggest threat in this particular game state might not make for the biggest threat in a different game state. So I don't think there's necessarily a hard and fast answer. I okay. think more often than not, the scariest board state um, I, I think is probably what generally winds up being the biggest threat. But again, I, the caveat I will put out there is Scariest Board State has a lot of factors involved, including some that you maybe can't entirely see. Um, I think people tend to forget about cards in hand in terms of Scariest Board State. I've, I've seen that mm -hmm. happen really, really frequently where someone's been drawing cards regularly for three or four turns and has, you know, a, a grip of 11 or 12, but their physical board in front of them might not necessarily look that threatening. But when you take into account that hidden information, how many resources they have at their disposal, their board state becomes much more threatening. So I think you have to really think about board state in terms of information beyond just like physically what's on the board yeah keeping it fluid like dana said i i would say is one of the most important things uh, someone could have a hermit druid on the battlefield and, and that's a very very scary card that enables all sorts of combos and all sorts of nonsense but yeah if dana's sitting over there with you know a full grip of cards and in got seven blue mana open, you <laughs> probably want to keep that in mind as you're getting ready to proceed and, and make those assessments. And then uh, somebody, you know, Joey casts a Cathar's Crusade. Well, that adds another layer of everything. So it's got to be changing nearly with every card that's played be, just because there's so many different factors you got to be weighing. And then, uh, then you have to keep in mind 
are you the threat? Are you the one <laughs> that is the biggest threat at the battlefield too? Because uh, that's very, very plausible. If you're in a, a position that you can pull off a victory, chances are you not having to worry about one other person, but three other people, that's something else that just brings, it's a whole other can of worms that it opens up. Yeah, I, I, I love the way that you said that there, especially like <laughs> predicting what is about to be the scariest thing. But yeah, it all comes into, I, I, I think that that is possibly the biggest thing that we could immediately see right here is that threat assessment is constantly evolving from game to game, but also from turn to turn, if not from play to play. Matt, you just mentioned Cathar's Crusade. On its own, might not be that scary, but if I'm about to play a thing that makes me five tokens, if I'm about to cast, uh, let's say I'm playing in my black-white token second and I cast an increasing devotion, Ocean, suddenly I have what might be one of the biggest, the scariest boards, or an Avenger of Zendikar, and I make a bunch of plant tokens. I only played two cards, but then suddenly that is a tremendous big board state, and it was facilitated by a single card. So that's what can make this so difficult to actually figure out, is like trying to predict all of those things that will make something scary. So the stuff that's going on, the hidden information part of this game makes it so complicated, and that's what makes this game so rich but it also makes it really, really hard to do. At the end of the day, I'm just actually really ha uh, happy that you guys didn't immediately say that um, the first thing you do when it comes to threat assessment is to kill Joey first. Because I really, I, I fully expected you to say that, actually. Oh, well, well Joey, if, if you've ever watched twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast, you've <laughs> tuned in Wednesday evenings, that's kind of a general rule of the stream is Joey has to die first. And um, so, yeah, just preview of things to come if you ever tune in. <laughs> Oh, and, and people absolutely should. It's an absolute delight. But for the record, I usually deserve to be killed first because I'm often doing some pretty ridiculous stuff that warrants everyone taking me down. So I totally get it. Often. Often. Yes. Often. Uh, but here, I guess, is really what we wanted to get into. Like, there, the, the threat assessment conversation is especially uh, difficult to pin down because it is so fluid and, and constantly moving. There's so much plasticity to it, honestly. But there was a specific poll that uh, was put online by one Megan Smith on Twitter at FedaMTG, who is a member of Wizards of the Coast staff. And, and honestly, we found the results of this poll very, very interesting. So the question that Megan had put up was this. How do you choose who to eliminate from the commander pod first? And she provided the following four options. Scariest board state, most skilled player, commander slash deck that you hate, and fourth, whoever is vulnerable. And these are really interesting options here. And we kind of wanted to break them down because there are really good reasons behind every single one of those. And later on, we'll actually reveal what the answers to this poll ended up being. But I think that it's just generally, this is a very cool piece of information for us to analyze EDH through because I think that there's a lot of merit and demerit to every single one of these options. Yeah, I, I mean, I think those especially, um, that's that's actually a pretty succinct breakdown of, of kind of what the four choices wind up being. There's a lot of complexity in, in each of those choices for sure, but um, I do think that's a pretty good four-choice uh, four option if you're going to have to limit yourself to four choices. Yeah, those if you had to pick probably the four of the broadest strokes, I yeah, that's that's probably it. Or, or something, if you don't have anything that wasn't represented there, it probably falls in one of those four categories for sure. Yeah. Uh, I know my answers, <laughs> but uh, I am curious to kind of see what we, what we dig up here and what the, the results of the poll were. 
Yeah, yeah. And and we'll get to that in a second. I want to keep people in suspense for now because let's actually go choice by choice and figure out why you would choose one of these. Dana, earlier on already you had mentioned that one of the things that is most prominent to you is the uh, whoever has the scariest board state tends to be the person that you put on the, on the highest pedestal when it comes to uh, threat assessment, that you are more likely to go after the player who has the current scariest board. So let's talk about that, the pros and cons of using that as your metric for threat assessment. Um, you know, uh, starting off with the pros, it, if someone has 800 creatures in play and they can kill you on the very next turn, well, it's probably a good idea not to go after a person who has zero cards in play. So, I mean, that's a very basic answer, but it's certainly a very serviceable answer as well. And that, that is a very rudimentary uh, little heuristic to use for certain. Yeah. Taking out the person who's most likely to take you out um, is probably the best move in most situations. Um, and that can take a lot of forms. The scariest board state doesn't necessarily mean the most things on the board too. There's plenty of situations where someone might have, you know, a bunch of mana ramp in play and a bunch of creatures in play, but for various reasons, you're not terribly concerned that they are going to kill you next turn. Whereas someone else's board may look much less impressive, but like based on their color combination and what their commander is and the fact they just tutored up a card last turn, those factors might make their board state quote-unquote scarier because they're in a position to perhaps just win the game next turn, either through a combo or, you know, an overrun kind of effect or whatever. Um, so defining, I guess, scariest board state in your head is also kind of important. It's not necessarily the most things in play. It's it's at least, to me, the person in the position to win the game the, the soonest. Yeah, the, the, the sense of urgency regarding the biggest threat mm. that is definitely a factor if somebody has an engine going but it's a very slow engine they're, they're making you know one creature every turn but it's a big creature but it's only one and there's blockers around you might want to give that person a turn or two uh, to, to you know not really worry about them make them your priority whereas if somebody else has a very explosive deck or say they just had the, a big you know they have 15 mana available and in seven cards in hand, there's a lot that can go wrong on one of those turns. So you want to keep an eye on that as well. So how immediate that threat is, is probably just as important to consider than, you know, just the, the actual size and impressiveness of what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, we used Cathar's Crusade as an example earlier on, like that one card can facilitate an enormously terrifying board. But like the same is certainly true for a card like Sanguine Bond. Like all you need for a Sanguine Bond is one other card, Exquisite Blood, and boom, you've got yourself an infinite combo there. So no matter how many creatures Matt might have in play, if another opponent has a Sanguine Bond in play... I need to be very, very afraid of that too, because technically that, even though it's just one card, might qualify as the scariest board state. Or or heck, a thousand year storm in play, which storms off all of your spells. If you have one of those in play, expect to be attacked by a lot of things, you know? Because even if one person has 20 power in play, 40 power in play, like the thousand year storm could kill every single person and not just one person. So that is certainly a big factor when it comes to the scariest board state is... A difficult thing to evaluate, but it certainly, as you guys mentioned, comes down to a sense of urgency. But there are cons to this as well. There are definitely things that just evaluating a scary sports, it, I think, will definitely miss. Like, I mean, as you guys said, there are some things that come out of nowhere. There are some decks that certainly play with all of their stuff in their hand. You can't really tell what they're up to. And then 
out of nowhere, they just hit you and, and win the entire game, even though all of the stuff was basically hidden information until that point. So if you are just evaluating based on what's in front of you on the board, I do think that you are strategically misleading yourself just a little bit if you're only evaluating the stuff that you can see. Well, it also kind of ignores the fact of a lot of things happen not on the board. Not everybody's Matt Morgan. Not everybody plays with their entire <laughs> hand on the battlefield. Uh, right. There are Dana Roaches out there. There are people who scheme and, and are planning three turns ahead. And and they might have a hand, like, like we said, they might have a handful of cards and a bunch of open mana um, and maybe just a Vidalcan Ori. That is just as scary as the person with the army on the battlefield. So keeping all the factors in mind, if you see the only, or if you're only looking at what they have actively on the battlefield, you might be doing yourself a little bit of a disservice. Well, and you also, what is the scariest board state to you might also not be the scariest board state to everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so you might be afraid of getting killed by that person who has a bunch of creatures out because you have very few blockers and no way to prevent that attack. The person to your right might be holding a fog and an aether spouts and an aether eyes and have a bunch of mana open, and they are not remotely worried about that person who's going to swing in with a swarm of creatures. Um, meanwhile, they are planning their own schemes to to win the game. So <laughs> that is also something that changes the perspective on what the scariest border state is changes from person to person to person. Yes, the person swinging with the creature might be the scariest person to you, but not necessarily the scariest person to somebody else. So that's actually something that comes up with with threat assessment as well. You know, people sometimes get mad about threat assessment. Well, why did you not do this thing? Well, you don't know what they knew. Right. You don't know what cards they had in hand. What is the biggest threat to you isn't necessarily the biggest threat to them either. So um, scary sports fight is is definitely something I I think that I kind of default to when all things are equal. I look in the direction of scary sports state, but uh, there's a lot of factors that go into making all things equal. Well, and, and that's just it. To my mind, there is no such thing as all things being equal sure, in, right. in this. There's too much going on. And specifically, Dana, you may or may not have uh, eaten a lot into some of the stuff I was going to bring up at the end of the episode about how the thing that is scariest to you might not be the thing that is scariest to another person. <laughs> you know, if someone is hellbent, that is a very different com- uh, conversation to have than someone who has 90 cards in their hand. Yeah. Or I guess if they have 90 cards in their Oof. hand, they might be dead. Oof. They've drawn their entire library. Um, but y- y- you get my point. If, if one person has a smothering tithe with a bunch of cards left in their hand and another person has a smothering tithe with no cards left in their hand, those are different threat evaluation levels for sure. And that's the thing to keep in mind yes. when it comes to just the stuff that is on uh, right there in front of you. This is certainly the category that I think warrants probably the most examination, but it's not the only category that we had there. Also in the poll, we had the option of choosing to go after the most skilled player. Matt, what do you think about that as an option? What would promote you to want to go after the most skilled player at the game instead of evaluating their board state or stuff like that? A good skilled player when it comes to magic in general, not just commander specifically, they're going to be able to maximize the cards in their deck. They're going to be able to play to their outs if they know they have you know, three cards are going to get them out of a sticky situation. They're they're going to know that. They're going to be aware of what's going on. And maybe just being able to, you know, best you when it comes to threat assessment at the same time. They're able to mm. be more patient. They're not going to overextend. They're not, they, they know somebody has a board wipe and they're not going to play three more creatures out of their hand. So it, they're not going to let that game-winning counterspell ruin their planes. They're going to be able to play around it. And so they're going to be able to, yeah, just make the most out of what's happening. They're not going to rush into things. They're going to be patient about it because a lot of times just being a little 
patient about your your deck and what you're trying to do, that might oftentimes save you and just increase the skill level that you're playing at as well. I would say a lot of times the most skilled player, um, if you take all the factors, kind of we mentioned the intangibles in in into your calculation, the most skilled player might have the scariest board state more often than not, once you consider everything. Um, so I would say this is probably the one of the things I choose. This is the, the, the one of the last factors I choose as the most skilled player because I, I do feel like that's something I kind of roll into scariest board state. I, I would say, however, what's a, what's a bigger factor is kind of the opposite of that. Um, while I might not necessarily focus down the the most skilled player, I'm much more likely to to let the person making the most mistakes linger around the longest. Mm. So while I might not specifically focus the best player, I'm much more likely to not worry about or let the person who's making the most errors, I, I don't want to say less skilled, but the person who's, you know, has the biggest holes in their deck or, or, or is, is most likely to misplay something. I'm much more likely to let them go than I am to let a, a skilled player go. So like if I have to choose between um, two people, it's not necessarily that I'm that I'm picking the more skilled player. It's that I'm intentionally not picking the less skilled player, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're, you're playing the players. You're not playing the, the decks. Yeah. I, and I can certainly get behind that. I mean, when you see, especially like a, a player who's able to fully take advantage of all of the amazing things that an Urza can do or that a Yawgmoth can do, like they are capable of some absolutely bonkers stuff. And if you let a player who you know is very, very proficient at this game, if, if you let the game go long, you're going to make more errors than they will. And so they will probably have a better chance of finding the out, even when you think that you have finally got them on the ropes. And so that is certainly risky. But th this does strike me as a thing with, there, like, there are some pros to this technically, but this strikes me as an option that has a lot of cons to it as well. Because if you focus on one person for their perceived skill level, you are ignoring the actual direct reality of what is happening right in front of you because the person who might have the most skill, like this is still a game with variance in it. They might have drawn really badly while a pre-con player is popping off, you know? Um, plus, I mean, really here, skill is just subjective. Like if you, it's not always healthy to go around for us judging who we think is the most skilled because that can develop, I think, into potentially negative assumptions about other players around you. And so I don't think it does any of us too many, um, too many favors to assume skill levels on other people. Like I, I'm going to assume that every one of my opponents knows exactly what they're doing because again, I can't see what's in their hand. Yeah, yeah a, absolutely. a grip full of five lands and that's it is not going to get you out of a situation no matter how many pro tours <laughs> you've won. Uh, very much agree. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Matt, I, I can certainly say when you have a hand full of five lands, I rarely know that you have a hand full of five lands. Oh, no, I, I will tell you because that's my politics. Well, I don't, you've, you've had some moments where you've surprised me that you didn't have anything going on. But man, I thought that you had a grip full of instants that you were just sitting on. Like that's certainly you've certainly pulled that trick on me before. And that was really spicy. No, that'll happen. Eh, eh, sometimes a better player wins. Oh, wow. OK. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the third option here. And Dana, I think that this is probably one that's near and dear to you. The third option here about uh, the, the deck, the player to go after in a game is commander slash deck that you hate. Um so tell us all about how much you dislike Corvold and Chulane, please. Um, and, and tell us why you would prioritize, if you chose this, what would be the thing that um, makes you want to go after a certain player or a certain deck because of their commander or because of maybe the pieces you know or in the, I, I don't know. What, what goes through your mind for this method? 
So there's a couple of ways to interpret this too. Um, when And that was not how I interpreted it. So when I think of commander or deck you hate, I, I literally think of it that way. I, I don't like Tulane, but I don't like hate Tulane, if that makes sense. I don't believe and, and you. I would, I'm sorry. I I would, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I do, but it doesn't necessarily engender uh, like specific emotional reaction in me. I just recognize it's a crazy powerful commander. So I'm going to maybe roll that into scariest board state. Oh, you have a Chulane in your command zone. Your board state is automatically going to be that much better than someone else playing, you know, a, a different band commander, for example. Um, on the other hand, you sometimes have that situation where someone's playing a, a deck where maybe they misrepresented what they were doing. And, you know, it's, hey, it's, it's not really that Turgrid deck, and it really is that Turgrid deck. Uh -huh. That situation... Mm -hmm. I will say this, I, I'm going to reject all logic and reason at that point and absolutely focus down that deck. <laughs> I, I, that that's going to be my my end goal is just hitting that deck. If I, if I do think someone's played a deck that, number one, is kind of frustrating to play against and misrepresented what they were doing, I'm just going to focus that, that deck down. So, so when you talk about commander or deck you hate, that's the situation I was thinking. Mm. Um, if you're talking about one that like is just super strong... I'm kind of mentally rolling that into board state because just Tulane and Korvald or or your your Golos when it was legal or your Maldrothas, that's just part of the board state. Those are always going to be a threat just by existing in the command zone. Yeah, I, I, Dane and I are on the same wavelength here. I Typically, if I see somebody playing a powerful commander, I'll keep an eye on it. I'll, I'll make sure, you know, whatever they're doing, I'm going to keep reassessing, keep reassessing. Uh, I have made the mistake of somebody saying it's not that Prime Speaker Vanifar deck, <laughs> and it turns out it was that Prime Speaker Vanifar deck. Or Turgrid absolutely is is a commander. I will change my plans uh, <laughs> for the game if somebody reveals that to be their commander. I that's a, that is definitely a commander that I I do hate. Uh, so I will target the the Turgrid player just because the pattern of of gameplay that that commander <laughs> on accident even will let happen. Uh, that's just not something that I really want to, and, and it might be a rule zero conversation, but if we do proceed with uh, with a Turgrid at the table, I 1000% will target them first. Well, yeah, and that's just it. I'm just like, pre-game discussions, you guys. Like, assuming even that you know that yeah. this is a, a deck that has been properly represented. Like, that you know you are going into this game knowing that this is in fact the way that everyone is going to play which is a, a fine thing to do assuming no misrepresentation are you still going after the turgrid and it sounds like to you the answer is yes i i think the nature of turgrid by itself though uh it's it's extremely hard because yeah a lot of my decks like if i play an evolving wilds that's just an evolving wilds for the turgrid player so it's not even anything that you just have the commander on the battlefield and it's already that turgrid deck the Chulane thing is interesting in particular because I, I have a, a, a friend um, here in town who actually just recently built a Chulane deck, and he built it with the theme of only running cards that have something to do with a library. So all his lands have to feature like something library-like or a book in the art. So he found basics that like can represent libraries or something along those lines. There's actually ones with books in the art. And he's not running duels that don't have something to do with the library. So he's a pretty basic land base. All his creatures oh. have to do with a library. They have to represent, you know, a book or a student or something along those lines. 
it's the most ridiculously limited version of a Tulane deck you can build, and he's 4-0 with it so far. He's not, <laughs> he's not lost a game yet, despite running, you know, only creatures and in, in, in spells that, that reference libraries or books or tomes, and he's 4-0. So, um, seems good. It, it, it that's an example of you just need to remember those things when you see those kind of cards in the command zone. That, that, yeah, that is definitely part of the uh scary board state. I, I, I am not here, Dana, for your mission to say that everything counts as scariest board state. Like, no, these are separate <laughs> options. Like, you're you're you are misrepresenting the project that we're here to discuss here. Okay, that's fair. How, how very dare, and for the record, I think that these like the commander or deck that you hate, I think that those come from a very logical place. Like, there's a reason that you have maybe I'll even for your sake regard it as like a, a deck that you are the most suspicious of there or, or, or something like that. Like, sure, there, there's a reason you have a history against this commander knowing what its gameplay is likely to entail and basically knowing that if it gets to do its thing that you will not get to do your thing yeah maybe that's even a better a better way for us to phrase it here yeah because you know if, if someone gets a henata in play and they are able to then land a distorting wake on their very next turn like henata reduces the x in that spell's cost to be you know they don't have to pay a bunch of mana for it and they just bounced every single permanent that everyone else has in play that's utterly ridiculous. That is a, a very, very powerful uh, way to go here. And it's certainly very scary. And that would be a reason that I'm not just suspicious of like, oh, this is a powerful commander. No, that's a play style that if they get to do something, I'm not going to get to play magic. And in that case, I do think that that is actually a very valid reason to go after that player first and foremost. For sure. Well, you talked about how this is sometimes something that you, you're you making logical choices about why you're, you're choosing to focus these decks you hate. Because they shut your deck down, for example, or 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 because they are really really powerful, um, but it's I, I think the, the downside of this is the con, the con here of, of focusing decks you hate is it's really easy to to do too much emotional thinking. Uh. Um, you know, it, it's easy to think you're making logical choices, but the fact that that Turgrid deck really frustrates you might lead you to not make logical choices, and you might wind up focusing that deck that you find annoying. While letting some other deck blow up, I, I just mentioned that. That's literally how I started this segment by saying, <laughs> "I will, I will." If a deck really annoys me, particularly if I think someone's misrepresented it, I am going to throw logic out the window and just focus it down. So this is a situation where, yeah, very much emotional thinking can override your critical thinking and lead you to to make what probably aren't the ideal choices. Yeah, it, it is a it is a four player four player format, so. Focusing on one person means two others are going to go unchecked. And that yeah. may, maybe, <laughs> call me crazy, but maybe isn't the best idea if you're trying to win games. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe the person isn't playing that Turgor deck, <laughs> right? Like, we, you always joke about the person saying that. Maybe they're not, and your knee-jerk reaction is to assume they are. And that can, you know, not be the best result either. Yes, absolutely. It, like, Matt, if you already have something in play that will keep that Turgrid deck on lock, then you don't need to worry about it. But I feel like you are not the type of person to let your heel off of them, even if you already have them, like, in a stranglehold. I, Just, I have but, like, never once held a grudge, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> not not uh -huh. in my life. I think we need to move on to the fourth option here. <laughs> and the fourth option on this poll was whoever is vulnerable, going after whoever is available to kick while they're down at the time. Um, Matt, is this a strategy that you ever enjoy? Um, I think it really depends on how 
able that deck is is going to be able to come back from that down and out position if it's mm-hmm. a powerful commander and this to me this one kind of rolls into the other categories more than anything if somebody is playing a very powerful commander that's able to have explosive turns uh i'm probably still going to go after them but if they're a deck that's kind of slow and plotting and they they require a, a bunch of creatures on the battlefield to really be able to do anything and, and there's just a board wipe i'm going to ignore them for a little bit now maybe if they're just absolutely struggling and they can't get out of it. I might ignore them, but I'll still keep an eye on them. But I, I struggle to say if it just because somebody's vulnerable means they're out. No, nobody's actually out of the game till they're at zero life or milled their library or whatever. Nobody's actually out <laughs> till they're out. I think that is one thing to keep in mind here. Okay. Okay. This is very much one that, that for me is entirely dependent on both my game state and the point of the game we're in. Um, Early on in the game, if someone's been been land screwed, I, I don't focus them. Number one, because I just feel bad and want to let everyone have a chance mm-hmm. to play. But number two, I, I, I'm going to hit the person that's the, at the scariest board state, and I'm going to not hit the person who's vulnerable because it, it, it's a much better choice, I feel, to hit the person who's who's a threat to me. Um, the other factor that, that plays in here is what I'm doing. If I'm the person that's also not doing great, I want to have as many other people around me soaking up damage mm, and mm-hmm. and possibly drawing answers to deal with the person who's winning the game. So I don't want to take anybody out. I absolutely want those people to stick around and soak up damage and possibly draw that board wipe and possibly draw that counter spell. Um, whereas if you flip that on its head and and I'm in the lead and it's late in the game, I want to take people out of the game. I want to remove that chance to draw the board wipe and that chance to draw the counter spell and the chance to draw that removal spell. So that very very much depends on where I'm sitting and what point the game's at. When I'm looking to wrap things up and if I'm in the lead, I want to remove as many variables as possible. If, if we're at the end of the game and someone else is in the lead, I want to keep as many variables as possible. So that is very, that this, this I think more than anything else is the one that very much depends on whatever else is happening around me. I, I love that. A very common trope that you hear, especially from pro players, is that when you are an, uh, in a position from being behind, increasing the amount of variance will give you the most chances for yourself to find outs uh, for the game. So increasing the variables, I'm super on board with that for sure. I, I will say that like th- this is one that I think I am possibly least likely to ever commit to personally, um, because if someone's not a problem at the current moment, yes, they could be dangerous later, but also I might need their help later. And if I got rid of what could have been a potential ally, while another arch enemy is like certainly sizing up their army, that's that's a thing that I might find myself coming to regret every so often. So this is an especially tricky one, but I can see reasons for you to go after someone when you have the option, because if you don't and you leave them alone, they could certainly come back. Who can say? Um, so Okay, so now that we've gone over those four options, these are certainly very interesting, but we're not going to get to the results just yet. We're going to leave you in suspense for just a little bit longer while we pause for Challenge the Stats, and don't worry, we'll get back to the results in a minute. But now, let's challenge those statistics, because there's so much stuff on EDA Track, but we don't always agree with all of the data. Sometimes cards are overplayed or underplayed, so we like to challenge those stats. Matt, do you want to start us off? I sure can. So my challenge this week actually was inspired by some of the conversations stemming from uh, uh, New Capenna, all the previews coming out. There's a lot of treasures in this set, folks. There's a lot of treasures. <laughs> and so uh, Nick, who is a member of the uh, Scrap Trawlers podcast, who you can find him over on Twitter at Plaid Clad, 
uh, he had a very, very good little uh, reminder to people. So I know I already talked about Manglehorn on the podcast and how in a, mm-hmm. a playgroup full of treasures, in the format full of treasures, Manglehorn making treasures enter the battlefield tapped is extremely powerful because, yes, they're generating a bunch of mana, but they have to wait a turn to spend it. And also you can blow up an artifact when it enters the battlefield. But the card I totally forgot about is Hammer Mage. So Hammer Mage is one and a red for a spell shaper. Uh, it's a 1-1 one, one, and you can pay X and a red and tap it. And then you discard a card from your hand. And then you destroy all artifacts with converted mana cost X or less. Currently less than 400 people are playing this card. It's old Mercadian Masks card. So Dana knows exactly what's going on here. <laughs> uh, but this card is is so powerful. So if you need a way to repeatably sweep away all of the the small artifacts, get rid of all the treasures, or if there's a academy manufacturer out in the battlefield, there's a lot of things that are going to be generated, just free value that a lot of decks are doing these days. And Hammer Mage is a fantastic way to turn dead cards into absolute haymakers. It is adjustable. It's X or less. So if you need to destroy just all those treasure tokens, just a red tap it, discard that extra lane that you don't need, and you get to destroy all the treasures. It's a modular type of card. It's super powerful. I just think in a whole bunch of treasures are coming out here in a, in a set that's featuring treasures very heavily. If your playgroup starts to get overrun with them, if they're building up their own little horde, Hammer Mage is a card that you're definitely going to want in your arsenal. So less than 400 decks, it's super underplayed. Uh, if the playgroup calls for it, definitely throw it in your decks. Fun stuff. Matt, I am absolutely here for the treasure hate. I'm going to move on now to my challenge here, which is our listeners submitted challenge for the week. Um, And this one comes from Chase Closed from our Discord, not to be confused with Chase, aka Mana Curves, who assists us with the post-production of the show. Um, But Chase wanted to call out a card that they've actually heard uh, us talk about on the show a couple of times, but we haven't actually officially like re-challenged this stat since like episode 80. Uh, So we are coming right back to it because it's been over two years since we talked about Teferi's Veil on the show in a challenge to stats. Teferi's Veil is a terrific two mana enchantment in blue, one in a blue that will phase out all of your creatures after they have attacked. Like during the end of combat, they phase out and then they'll, you know, come back to you again on the next turn. This card is so good. Dana, I know that you use this in your Talrand deck because phase out all of those drake tokens will prevent them from being board wiped during your opponent's turns i have used this uh in will to make sure that my decayed zombies don't actually fall apart after they attack instead they just phase away and i've got them again next turn this is just a terrific terrific card chase specifically here wanted to actually challenge it in gore muldrak decks because Gore Muldrak is that Simic Salamander guy, and Gore Muldrak makes a bunch of tokens for each player who controls the fewest creatures. So if your stuff has already phased out after you attacked with it, you'll have fewer creatures. So you're definitely going to make sure that you get more Salamanders. This is a really terrific card that is currently only showing up in 2,500 decks. We've talked about it obliquely here in the past, like way, way long ago. But Chase, I completely agree with you that this card is still way underplayed. Thank you so much for challenging it again here for us. Uh, I think that we can say that this chase is closed. I mean, this case is closed. Ha ha. Did I dad joke correctly? I think the answer is no. I think we need to move on to Dana's challenge. You, you tried. I, th- I think Dana needs to show you how it's done. <laughs> there it is. So um, I'm going with a relatively new card, which is, I know, shocking for everyone. Um, Secrets of the Golden City mm. from, from Ixalan. So I guess it's not that new. It's at this point about four years old or so. 
Um, it's blue-blue colorless, three mana total for a sorcery with Ascend. And if you control 10 or more permanents, you get the city's blessing. It says draw two cards, and if you get the city's blessing, draw three cards instead. It's currently only in about 1,700 decks in EDH rack. Um, Divination's in 4,000 decks, which is just a flat draw two cards. Yes, Divination is too colorless in a blue to draw two cards. And I guess it's slightly harder to cast Secrets of the Golden City at, you know, double blue and a colorless. But the upside is basically by turn five in most games, it's just going to draw you three cards. Mm. So for the first couple turns of the game, it's Divination, which you're probably not casting Divination on turn one or two anyway. So essentially you have a window during, you know, turns three or four or five maybe, where Secrets of the Golden City, worst case, is a slightly harder to cast Divination. After that point, it's just a better Divination. Um, it's kind of in that sweet spot that, that I like, especially with card draw, where it just gives you more cards than you started the turn with. <laughs> it doesn't suck up your entire turn either. So you can play the spell. You can use your couple extra mana you had left to refill your hand to top back off at seven or so and move on with your day. <clears throat> it's just a card I like a lot, particularly in decks that maybe something like Winged Words that I also love doesn't really work because you don't have enough flyers or maybe you're not aggressively attacking enough to make chart of course work. So if those kind of cards that kind of fill the same void don't really work for you, Secrets is a fantastic card and I think it definitely should see more play than the 1700 decks it's in right now because a three mana draw three is a really good rate of return and shows you just how insanely broken Ancestral Recall was back in the day. <laughs> see, see, Dana, I'm really glad you went to patreon.com slash EDHRetCast and joined up at the tier where you can see all of our historic <laughs> challenges stats picks. Because was this a Matt selection? Your good buddy Matthew Morgan challenged us back oh. in episode 30 of the wow. podcast. I beat you by nearly three years. <laughs> good, good call, Matt. Nice so, pick. I just I, I appreciate your support three years too I, late. I, I, so, so I, I'm reaffirming Matt's brilliance here. Matt Matt called it first and I'm I'm agreeing oh. with him three years later. Yeah. I, I, I love how Dana, you started off that challenge by saying it's a relatively recent card. And Matt literally episode thirty of this podcast <laughs> right. challenged him. <laughs> right. We we're all in the middle of a panini uh so we, we get that like time is a lot 20 yeah 2020 is a rough year i get it um you may have forgotten about it uh just here to remind you that uh our, all of our patrons probably were yelling at you already <laughs> right, oh. right right they all remember back in episode 30 oh man yeah time is alive when you're in the middle of a panda express and i love that this good Good lord, this 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 is this is iconic to me. I'm not even letting you redo this. We're making sure that we keep this. <laughs> this is perfect. We're not letting you change this, and, and then we'll fix it in post. No, no, this we, we caught you red-handed. <laughs> That's fair. This is, this is this is so great. Okay, let's try and move back into our main episode. We'll get finally now, I think, to the results of that poll when it comes to players' threat assessment. So once again, this was the poll by a member of Watsi staff, Megan Smith, at FedaMTG on Twitter, put up the question, how do you choose who to eliminate from the commander pod first? The options were scariest board state, most skilled player, commander slash deck you hate, and whoever is vulnerable. And uh, drum roll, please. Let's actually get to the results now. Matt, what do we have? So, starting from the bottom, then we'll get here. Uh, <laughs> coming in at only 9% of the of the votes were going after the most, most skilled player first. Uh, that's actually kind of surprising to me, but 
here we are. Uh, third most chosen answer at 15% was whoever is the most vulnerable. At 21% then in second place, choosing the commander or deck that you hate. And then the most chosen option, the most prioritized at over 55% of the votes was players are prioritizing the threat as the scariest board state at the table. So... Dana, I feel like you feel vindicated right now because you talked about nothing but the scariest board state for several of the options. <laughs> Even when it was talking about other ones, yeah. Even when it was talking about <laughs> other ones. But okay, so I find this very interesting. And I want to ask, do you agree? Dana, we know that you would have chosen scariest board state. Matt, was that the option that you would have gone with? I would have definitely picked scariest board state as my number one. Uh, the order of results, I'm a little surprised at. Only 9% of people saying... Uh, that they would have gone after the most skilled player. That surprises me. Uh, I would have probably gone number one, scariest board state, number two, commander or deck that I hate, which was number two. And then number three, I would have put the most skilled player. I, sometimes you do have to play the players just because you know what they're they're capable of and, and maybe they're, they're better at hiding what they're doing. And then the last option that I would have picked, or at least is last in my priority, is who's the most vulnerable. Uh, eliminating players, yes, game's got to end, but also I want people to be able to play the game. And so, like we kind of discussed earlier, I, I'm not going to go after somebody just because they're they're in the weakest board state. Okay, okay. Real quick, by the way, I think it's important for us to note the, the biases that would be associated with, you know, a, a self-selecting poll like this. Like, you know, the, the types of people who will respond are certainly, you know, followers of uh, an actual Watsi personality. This is also not a poll with thousands of responses. It is a poll with, you know, 141 responses. But I still find these fascinating because... To me, the most important lesson here is not that you ought to uh, judge based off of one factor or another, but simply being aware of how players are judging off of one factor or another. It is important information to me to see that the majority of players are evaluating threat based on board state rather than evaluating threat based on other factors. Dana, I'm sure you have plenty to say and feeling vindicated about this result, though. Yeah, it, it, this is the, the thing that I think... Um that comes up for me most often is, is is that board state. I do think though, I, I, I it's also the one that people get wrong most often. Mm. Um, I, I don't feel like people like very frequently, you know, misevaluate the strongest player and, and attack poorly based on that. I think if you, if that's your metric, you're probably pretty good at determining it. I, I, I think obviously what commander you hate isn't particularly subjective. You, you hate it or you hate it. I mean, like <laughs> that's, that's tough to screw up. Um, and usually you can kind of tell who's the most vulnerable too. Scariest board state, though, I, I do think is one that's very easy to miss. And I mentioned card draw. I do think that's one that at least in my personal experience that I think people miss out the most, um, particularly maybe because I play a lot in spell table these days where you can't as easily see what's in someone's hand. Yes. So if someone's drawing a couple of cards every turn, it's very easy to kind of miss that because they're not saying they're sitting there holding that like fanned out grip of 16 cards. <laughs> it, it's much easier to kind of subtly really not realize that they've been drawing three cards to turn off that Mystic Remora or something. And they're now up to 20 in hand. Um, so I, I think that's one people miss out on both because they don't see it physically and because it's just not on the table, it's just easy to just not think about the fact that they have access to so many different options. And yeah, so th so this is the one that I think is the most important and also maybe misplayed the most by people. 
Thank you for mentioning the card draw thing, because to me, that is an enormous factor here that scariest board state absolutely does not account for. Like the hidden information that that person has, like I I am a lot more inclined, I think, to set my sights on someone who's been drawing a butt ton of cards compared to the stuff that is actually in play, because the person who's drawn a butt ton of cards probably drew answers to the stuff that is in play. Like I mentioned earlier with the smothering tithe example, a smothering tithe in the hands of a person who has a lot of cards in hand versus a smothering tithe where the person has one card left in hand, I'm a lot more scared of one of those things versus the other. There's one of those smothering tithes that I am inclined to pay mana for. And one of those smothering tithes that I'm kind of like, you got nothing that you'll probably spend all of that mana on because you've got one card left in your hand. I'm not as afraid of that. But the person who's been drawing so many cards, that is a lot more terrifying to me because they probably found an answer to all of my board state already. Well, right. And I will say not only is that something I see happen to other people where I think where I think to myself in, in the middle of a game, why are you not attacking this person who's just drawn a bunch of cards? I think about myself. <laughs> like I think, why is no one attacking me? I've just drawn a bunch of cards. You should all be folk. I'm not going to volunteer that information up to a lot of people. But like that's probably the thing I most often think too when I'm when I'm be, being incorrectly evaluated for threat. Like. You people should be much more scared of me because of how many cards I've drawn and you're not, and that's a mistake. So it's not even just other players, it's myself. That, that's why I always make it a, a big point, especially on Spell Table where you're not physically in front of people anymore. Mm-hmm. You're not able to look and, and kind of see, okay, they have a, they have two cards I can tell. Asking on Spell Table, okay, uh, so-and-so, how many cards, cards do you have in hand? hand? Yep. <laughs> yeah, asking that at least every other turn cycle just so you can kind of keep tabs on how many cards whoever has and just I mean, maybe that's a habit that i've built up over all my time playing 60 card formats but that's a question i think is terribly terribly under asked to the table is okay uh how many hands or how many cards do, does everybody have in hand uh, and you might have forgotten oh dana's over there with with 12 cards yeah that's probably going to be a problem <laughs> you also then kind of avoid the problem and i guess we're getting into threat discussion here a little bit but but sometimes people people generally don't like being told they're doing something wrong. Oh. So it, it's not always productive to say, why are you not attacking that person? They just drew 10 cards. If you can lead them to that conclusion by saying, hey, how many cards are in hand? Even if you know they have 10, <laughs> just getting that information out there and letting people then react to it is sometimes, strategically speaking, the better way to handle it. Yeah, how you phrase those questions matters so much, yeah. Yes. For real, like, I think it affects our gameplay a lot to know how other players evaluate threats, like, even more sometimes than how we evaluate threats. Because if you are trying to convince me that Dana is actually the problem... Like you have to emotionally know where I am coming from. And if you're trying to direct me a certain way, it's not going to work. It's just absolutely not going to work. I don't want to be told what to do. I'm here to play my game and I hope that you can get me to agree with you. But once again, this is a hidden information game. You don't know what I've got in my hand. I might have an answer. I might want their board state to look even bigger and more scary to you so that you use your answers because I'm already actually sitting pretty. If I get one more turn, then I should be fine. I want them to overextend. Maybe I have a board wipe and I'm waiting for their hand to be empty. Maybe I have an insurrection and I'm going to take control of all of the stuff that they play. So if you want to convince other people about what the threat actually is, you need to know how they are thinking emotionally and you need to know what the vibe in the room is going to be. And this is an interesting poll to key into what that vibe is going to be. I've got a question here that Matt, I think I'll pitch to you first. When it comes to different decks, like, do you think that you have, would your Valduk deck, as an example, 
respond to this poll differently than your Miri deck? Do you think that your commanders would choose different options? That's actually a very good question. I, Thank it's you. hard for me to <laughs> be able to tell. Well, and mostly because, yes, it, it might be a different commander at the helm. It might be my Miri deck, it might be Alila, whatever. But ultimately, I'm still the one piloting, and I know myself pretty well. <laughs> and so I know that I, I would still answer probably the same way, regardless of deck, because I, I build those decks in the same way. That's it's that same mentality that I have. Okay, I need to make sure I'm, I'm shoring up this weakness. I'm, I'm shoring up this thing. I want to make sure I'm doing this active game plan that I'm doing. So I'm still asking myself the same questions in the deck building process. It's just the how I'm doing, the or how I'm answering those questions, I should say not what what am I doing? And so I think for the most part, all of my decks would answer the question, answer this question in the poll the same way. But I, that's something that I probably could think a little bit about on. And and I know I've had revelations with decks and, and thinking, okay, this is a control deck. And I need to finally admit that to myself. But I don't know if that changes the answer so much. Okay. Okay. Dana, what do you think? I think it should. Commander is such a crazy, complicated format. There's just so many variables, both in terms of the amount of cards you can run and, and how you brew and how you play and what your pod is like and what your meta is like. There's just so many different things that can affect this stuff that I, I feel like it has to. I have a deck, um, my Kettis and Krom deck, that tends to kill the table simultaneously mm. because of the way Kettis works. It spreads the damage around. So the goal is to front load enough damage on Krom when I swing through that I'm going to hit everyone simultaneously for, you know, 25, 30, 40 damage, whatever it winds up being. That's probably a situation where I'm I'm a little bit less worried about things like board state and I'm maybe more worried about the good player because the good player is more likely to have that perfect removal spell or that fog or that that counter spell in the crucial moment. Whereas board state is maybe less relevant there because I don't care how many elves you have out. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill everyone. I'm going to hit somebody <laughs> else and you're going to take 30 damage. Now your elves aren't going to make a difference there. Mm -hmm. So I think definitely that this is something that's, that, that flexes based on deck for sure. I, I can also think of an example just in my own family meta. My stepdad plays a Karlov life gain deck and he gets up to a thousand life so easily. And if I'm over here playing something like zombie tribal... A thousand life is a that that is just not a reality that I can fight through. The commander damage that I would try to deal to get through that would be so small. Versus like according to my mom, who has a Dragon Lord Ojutai Voltron deck, thousand life doesn't matter at all. That is just like our threat assessment there is completely different. If I were to be playing the Dragon Lord Ojutai Voltron at all, I am not worried about the life game player at all. I'm not going to prioritize that. I know that I've got them unlocked. I need to be worried about their cards and not themselves. Whereas if, you know, I'm over here playing Goblin Tribal or Zombie Tribal or whatever, I think that I would be very, very, uh, I'd be very encouraged to go after the life game player from the get-go because I know that if they do get to a bunch of life, I cannot win the game in a realistic fashion against them. So I have to start with the gas pedal already slammed to the floor from the very start because otherwise if they get to do the thing, I won't get to do the thing. And that is a different level of assessment versus when I'm playing a deck that actually prioritizes commander damage. Yeah, that's a perfect example right there, Joey. Um, understanding what your individual deck's weaknesses are um, and strengths are is also going to very much inform these choices too. Yeah, asking ourselves, is this thing scary in general or is it just scary to me? And, and like you guys said, this is absolutely fluid. It's constantly changing. I, I think it's important for us to know not just that these things are changing from turn to turn, but they'll change from deck to deck, from player to player. And uh 
if you do want to try and change someone's mind and redirect where their attention is, you got to understand where they're coming from. And a poll like this is certainly helpful to see where it is that most folks are coming from. Well, let's give a big shout out to, to Megan Smith, uh, who you can find on Twitter, as always, uh, at FADAMTG, and FADA is P-H-A-E-D-A-M-T-G, uh, just for the idea. This is always a very good topic to revisit. So seeing one of these types of polls, it's very helpful. So thank you, Megan, for the the idea. And, and we definitely appreciate the, the thoughts going out there and, and seeing that the hashtag Watsy staff are uh, are, are, are churning some some ideas over. Oh, very very much. Uh, yeah, it, it's cool to see. Like Watsy wants to know this information too, but I think it's good for uh, the designers to know so that they have that in mind as they're designing. And it's really great for players to know so that we have it in mind while we're playing and we know where everyone else's head is at in the game because that just knowing other players' mentalities it's really really important. So so listeners, we would really love to hear from you about what you think is the correct answer to this poll or how things change from one deck to another or are there options on this poll that you actually choose to go after instead like what are some of the motivating factors for you when it comes to threat assessment that maybe weren't mentioned in this episode it's really interesting to hear because sharing those experiences is how we get better at this game so we would love to hear from you all but for now i think we're going to call this episode to a close fellas if our listeners want to get in touch with us to assess more threats where is it that they can find us all matt so you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDHRecast. We have guests on every single week. It is always a super fun time, so make sure you tune in. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitterbirds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on other podcasts, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDHREC and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDHRecast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDH RecCast on Twitter and on Facebook. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production work on the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. And you can visit Altersleeves.com slash EDHRecCast for cool, custom EDH Rec sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but Until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>